Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, as you know, our public study this month as a congregation, as a, as a Canadian work, has been is entitled One World Religion. And coincidentally enough, as been, has been more frequent than not this week or this year, something happened this week to to lead towards this study that can support this. Everybody, obviously, unless you've been living under a rock, has heard uh, that uh, other things have happened this week over in Belgium. And time would get away from us if we began to go into the details of the events of this week. I'm quite sure that you have been keeping up with it and following the news reports and following the Unfortunately, the, the convoluted news reports, if you, watch one, if you watch Fox, you'll get one side of the story. If you watch CNN and CBC and CTV, you'll get another side of the story. But as much as people may not want to admit it, and in some cases when you watch the news, they really struggle not to admit it, the world is changing faster than most can comprehend. So fast, in fact, that we can't even keep up to all of the changes. It wasn't that long ago that terrorism was a foreign concept to most. Now, Islam was simply another religion with roots in the Middle East. The confusion is, is exacerbated by political extremes who take sides on this issue for political gain. And we can see that we had an election last year um, here in Canada. They are going through a long, extremely long, as we were talking last night, an extremely long election process in the United States. And terrorism and, uh, is one of the foremost issues. But it's not being handled for the protection of society. It's being handled for political gain, not for the purposes of protecting the people. So in light of all that, where does that leave us, the family of God? Locally here in Burlington, we've been blessed to be further ahead than most in terms of beginning to understand Islam's place in history and on the world scene today. We've, as you know, we've been uh, over the course of the last number of months, and, and probably up to about a year now, been studying a little bit of Islam, been studying the impact of the Book of Revelation and prophecy as it relates to to the end the end time events that are coming. We've also been delving into the Book of Revelation over the last number of months, and we've learned why it is such an important part of God's Word. It prepares God's people for the alarming events that will take place before the greatly anticipated return of His Son. Jesus Christ. So while many are caught by the surprise of catastrophe, again this week, folks are shocked that, the, that these events happened over in Belgium. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be shocked because we can see if we read God's Bible, things are slowly starting to take shape. As events unfold in Revelation, the vision Christ gave to John foretells of other characters coming on the scene that have been the source of wonder and debate for biblical scholars and students for many, many years. Let's go to Revelation 13 to have a look as we begin the study. Revelation 13. And as you turn there, I'll remind you of where we've been so far in Revelation. We talked about, as we walked through the first chapter, the first five chapters really are an introduction to the, the prophecies of Revelation. It really sets, lays the, the groundwork for why Christ gave this revelation to John 
for the purposes of his people, being made aware of events that will shortly take place. So we know that the, the book is written to God's people, to the church, so that they are made aware of events that will take place up to the return of Jesus Christ and the onset and coming of the kingdom of God. Revelation 13, we sort of drop into one part of the story that is yet future. We'll just begin in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled. All the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have been not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So here we're introduced to this very famous character in John's vision called the Beast. What we do notice initially as we walk through this is that the dragon gave him his power. So he is a representative of Satan, the devil. That's, that's key in where we're going to be going here in the study here. Furthermore, as we read through, he is working against God and his people. So Satan has given this beast power. The dragon has given this beast power. And he'll be working against the people of God. And people will be looking all of, as it says here, all the world marveled and followed the beast. So there's going to come a time when this character called the beast is going to be, be have the praise and worship of the entire world, except for those who follow God. And he will be so magnificent in the eyes of the world that they will think no one is capable of taking on this beast. Who is like the beast, they will say. Who is able to make war with him? This beast, also known as the Antichrist, often called the Antichrist, will take on God's people, and as we see, will temporarily be victorious. Temporarily be victorious. We drop down to verse 11. We come upon another character in this vision. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. So he comes off looking like a lamb and also spoke like the dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So again, as we're getting the the setting here and looking at this character, this second beast, often called the, the false prophet, he is working in support of the first beast, as we see here. So they're working hand in hand. He's supporting the first beast. And in this case, this, this particular 
second beast, this false prophet, as, as he's also known, performs great miracles. That's one of, that's one of the, the signs of, of this second beast. And he deceives, as it says, all those on the earth who believe in his signs. So there, the, those who don't believe in Christ, it's, it tells us here, will believe in these magnificent signs of this second beast. Verse, th- verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who, as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. It finishes up. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of, of a man, and his number is 666. But here it is telling us that the entire world, of course, save for those who follow God, will follow and worship these beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Today, we see a myriad of different religious options available to people. As our society becomes more and more multicultural, and that was an election issue that we were privy to last year, with that comes more choice. There are a multitude of religious options that people have. here. In a country that was founded upon the Bible, there are a multitude of religious options for people to find their God. As we do our part in trying to preach the truth of God, we are up now against more and more available options. Not just Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, Taoism, a myriad of, of various religions. The passage we just read tells us that there's a coming a time when there will be only one other option than Jesus Christ. One other option besides the truth of God. Right now we see a world full of options, but there's coming a time when there will be one option. You either follow, follow God or you follow this other option. Everyone else who doesn't follow God will come together as one united front against the people of God. And initially, the beasts will come out on top. Initially, they will come out on top. Let's go back to Matthew 24 and see what Christ himself told us. Matthew 24. Again, this prophecy, which we've studied in depth over the last number of months. For time's sake, let's just look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, there would no flesh be saved. Of course, this is talking about physical salvation. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So as these beasts come to power and do what they're going to do and come against God's people in one united front, there will be pain and there will, they, they will be victorious. There will be death. There's, there will be time like we have never seen. When we think back into history as to what we know about all the wars that have taken place over not just the 20th century, but as far back as history takes us and all the atrocities that have happened. And we look at all those things that have happened. Or and it can be, we've got folks that grew up in Europe and, were, and whose families were 
were involved in the wars. We uh, have been, we're neighbors to the United States where they had their own civil war 150 years ago. We know all the wars that have happened in the name of religion over the last number of thousands of years. What is coming in the future will be worse than anything that has ever happened. That's, that is what Christ here himself is telling us. Where does that leave the people of God? Where does that leave us, the people of God? How do we navigate these changing times in light of the preparatory warnings that God here provides for his people? In light of this part of the story where all these religions come into, come into one united front and take on the people of God, who we are part of that group, those people of God. This afternoon, let's walk through the pages. What we're going to do in this study is just walk through the pages of the Bible and see what God has to say about these coming events. With so much chaos, political agendas adding confusion to the, to the mix, we need to be sure as God's people that we know what God has to say about these times and what he expects of us as his people. So who is this beast? That's a subject that many have debated. Right now, we are in a process of, is it the Roman Catholic Church? Is it Islam? We know that our history as an organization has, has taught us one way, when now events seem to say, maybe we weren't right. Maybe it could be this. Is it the Roman Catholic Church? Is it, is it Islam? Is it something else we haven't even heard of? Let's go back to Genesis 1 and see what the Bible says. What, what do, as God's people, what do we need to keep in mind throughout this, these, these times as the Bible points us toward this unification of religions that will, that will happen against God's people? Let's go back to Genesis 1. We're going to read a very familiar scripture, but it's key here as we proceed through this study. Verse 26. Many of you, I'm sure, could don't even need to turn there, but let's turn there and look at it for ourselves. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We know, if you look back in verse 25, that all the other parts of the creation were created after their own kind. Man was created after God's kind. And in doing so, verse 31, again, for time's sake, let's skip to verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. When he made man, man was the centerpiece of his creation. He was the Part of the plan, the whole reason for God's plan of creating a family so he could share his glory and share his glory in this great kingdom that he had. But man was the centerpiece of his creation. Made, as David wrote and as Paul in Hebrews quoted, made a little lower than the angels for a time. So consider man being the centerpiece of God's creation, the part of the creation that made creation very good. And he was created a little lower than the angels. So there's this angelic realm that was created before man, below which man sits. But in the process of time, as God's plan will unfold, will become higher than the angels. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. 
And as we consider God's plan, we note that the created archangels, which were the epitome of God's creation before man, they were the, the highest level of the angelic realm before man, will eventually be usurped by the glory of man, by the glory that God gives to, his, to this, the epitome of his creation, the centerpiece of his creation, mankind. Revelation 12, verse 7. At some point in the past history, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So at some point, Lucifer, one of the archangels, the epitome of God's creation before man, was not satisfied with his role in God's plan. He was created as part of this angelic realm that would have been just below man when man received his glory. And he would, they were kicked out of their home. There was no place for them found in heaven any longer. So as the angelic brothers, these archangels are considering, Satan, Lucifer specifically, he's considering that he was the epitome of creation. And then he sees that halfway through the story, God is creating the centerpiece called mankind, who he is going to make part of his family, the God family. And he sees them going to be made in the image and likeness of God. Not angelic, but in the image and likeness of God. I was the son of the morning to you, he tells God. Let's go to Ezekiel 28. And we can see what amounts to a temper tantrum, quite frankly, that Lucifer had. When he considered his falling place in God's plan. Not understanding God's plan. He saw himself being dropped a peg or two. I can remember years and years ago when Lisa and I were first married, we bought a dog. We had a dog for about three years before we had Caitlin. We brought Caitlin home, and the dog was a great dog. We bring Caitlin home. All of a sudden, the dog is now not number three. The dog's number four. And it took some adjustments, but it was okay for, for a couple of years. The dog was starting to get a little out of sorts because he was not number one in our hearts anymore. He was number two behind Caitlin. Then we have Landon. Now he's number three. And he, he actually went after Caitlin, and we actually had to get find him a home with an older man by himself because he could no longer accept the fact that he was bumping down a peg. We can see that here in the emotions of Lucifer here in Ezekiel 28. Verse 12. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were Eden, in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers you. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones, and you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Imagine being this type of created being by God. The seal of perfection, the son of the morning, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, 
being on God's holy mountain, a place in the heavenly kingdom, and then finding out that God was going to create something higher than you. Lucifer didn't react to that. He wanted more. He didn't like the fact any longer that he was happy with his status as an archangel. The epitome of the angelic realm. Perfect in his creation. That wasn't enough when he found out the plan of God meant some, there was going to be another type of beings that would be higher, that would be actually like God himself and part of his family. Not a servant to the God family, but actually in the family of God. Genesis 3. So as Satan, Lucifer, considers this, and we read the war that took place with Michael and the group of angels that supported Lucifer and went and were cast down to the earth, no longer have a place in heaven. They're down on, on this earth that God has created. The serpent in chapter 3, verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan presents another plan to man. But his desire is not to save us to his side. There's nothing to save us to. There's nothing to save us to. He wants us to suffer the same fate he will. He can no longer participate. He has no place in the kingdom of God. He's been cast down to earth. Him and the other angels have no place in, in the glory of God. But he has nothing to save us to. So his only option is to have the, the epitome of God's creation, the centerpiece that will usurp him, suffer the same fate he will. And that is expulsion from this kingdom of God. That's, that's where his mindset is. He wants us to suffer the same fate that he will. Complete exclusion from the kingdom of God. If he can't have that glory again, then the centerpiece of God's creation can't have it either. And that will be, that will be his modus operandi from then on. That he will make sure mankind does not see the kingdom of God. Genesis 10. So how does he do this? Obviously, this is a subject here in Burlington that we've been discussing in detail over the last number of several months now. He begins, fast forwarding through the story, in Genesis 10, verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh, Kala, that is the principal city. So we 
know the history of Nimrod. We've studied it uh, several months back, and if you have, have missed those sermons, I encourage you to, to listen to them again on our website. But God, Satan, Lucifer, Satan, began his plan to remove man from, exclu- from inclusion in the kingdom of God by creating another system of worship. There's only God. As we, as we looked in the future and we saw as, that, that the, the, as, this God, as the plan of God accelerates and this one world religion, all the religions come together as one, there will be God's side or there will be not God's side. So Lucifer, Satan, started back with Nimrod to start to build that system of worship, a system of worship that was contrary to God's way of life. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. Again, one world religion. And they have all one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be held from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So as Satan is lining up, remember his plan is simply to remove mankind from the kingdom of God. He sets up, an, as we know, another system of worship. And at that time, it was one. There was one language, one system of worship. But God needed to, to scatter it because it wasn't time for that yet. There was things that needed to be done through the calling of the covenant people, proceeding through to the, the coming of Christ, and all that makes up the, the thread of the plan of God. But he started, we know, as we know, well know, with Nimrod. The purpose of which we cannot forget is to bring the centerpiece of God's creation to its doom and to ruin God's plan. It really is just that simple. This entire, from the time Adam and Eve turned their back on God, Satan's plan, pure and simple, is to have us not included in the kingdom of God. He can't have it. He made that choice. He wants us not to be there either. He has nothing to save us to. There's not another side that we can go to and say, I'll take that side. That's, you know, there's heaven and then there's Satan's way. There is no Satan's way. It's like darkness being the, the, simply the absence of light. It's simply the absence of the kingdom of God. There is nothing else. But that's what Satan is, is, is that's, that's his only mission in life now is to remove us from the kingdom of God, the mankind. The complicated part, as simple as that sounds, is the depths that he has gone to to accomplish this task. We know him as the dragon. We know him as the adversary, the prince of the power of the air, the roaring lion that walks about. He has just gone to such depths to accomplish that plan. Let's go to Daniel 2. The depths that he has gone to. As God 
chose the people Israel, chose Abraham and his family through Isaac and then through Jacob to be his people through whom he would work. Satan, as part of his mission to remove man from the kingdom of God, focused on the covenant people to make sure they would not be saved. And we see here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, again, cutting into the context because we have gone through much of this over the last number of months. But by way of reminder here, Daniel reviews, reviews four of the kingdoms that Satan has used to play a part in his plan to destroy his people. You, O king, verse 37, are king of kings. Obviously, Daniel here is talking to Nebuchadnezzar, part of the Babylonian Empire. For the king, the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. So for a time here, God is allowing this to happen. God is allowing this to happen. You are this head of gold, he continues. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So again, we don't have time to go into all those details. We have certainly studied this in depth. But here, Daniel talks about four of the kingdoms that Satan has used to work against God's people, to work against the covenant people of God, to play a part in Satan's overall plan that mankind will not have access to the kingdom of God. In Revelation 17, we know that Christ adds to the historical record here by talking about seven kingdoms. And we know from our past studies that Nebuchadnezzar's vision was limited to what was simply affecting him. There was no there were previous kingdoms that are talked about here by Christ here through the, the pen of John in John's vision. And again, for time's sake, for right now, we'll come back to chapter seventeen much later. Let's go to verse ten. There also are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So here we see, as we studied here in our local congregation, we see here Christ adding to the historical record that there were seven kingdoms. Again, simply seven kings, seven empires that Satan has used to harm, hurt, and destroy God's people and not grant them access. Have mankind choose not to have access to the kingdom of God. The narrative of the Bible is about, as we know, is about God's redemptive plan to bring man, the centerpiece of his creation, back into a state of complete unity and sinlessness to be worthy to be in that kingdom. We phrase it in many ways. We talk about the sacrifice of Christ. We're coming upon the Passover right now, and the sacrifice of Christ is, is, is front and center in our minds. But really, when we break down the, the, the thread of the Bible, the purpose for our existence, the, the storyline that flows through the Bible, the narrative as we call it, it's really God's plan to bring man to a state of unity and sinlessness so he can be part of the kingdom of God. 
That's it. That's, that's breaking it down in simple terms. That is it. But man struggles against the wiles of Satan through these empires that represent Satan. And specifically the covenant people through whom God has been working have been the reason for all of these kingdoms. The reason for all of these kingdoms is Satan has been working through different setups to hurt, harm, and destroy the covenant people. And then ultimately, through the covenant people, all of mankind, so that they do not have access to this kingdom. And they all receive their authorities. We read here from Daniel and in Revelation, they received their authority from Satan. God allowed it, but Satan gave them the, their authority. The cast-down ruler of this world gave them this authority. So we remember who and what is at the root of all of this. As we consider, is it the Roman Catholic Church? Is it Islam? As we, as we watch world events take place, we cannot forget that it is Satan the devil. That is who it is in various forms. Back thousands of years ago, it was Assyria. That's who it was. Then it became Egypt. Then it became Babylon. Then it became the Medes and the Persians. Then it became Greece. Then it became the Romans. But it has always been Satan. It has always been Satan. Because Satan is mad that he cannot have glory and that we will gain glory. It is that simple. It is that simple. So who will lead this rebellion that we read about? Who will lead this beast power? Who will it be? Will it be the Roman Catholic Church? Will it be Islam? Who will lead this seventh kingdom? Prophecy has long attracted man and his attempts at interpreting its timing and the players that will fill it, that will fulfill it, all that we read. Prophecy has always attracted biblical scholars, biblical students as to who who these players are. When will these things take place? We obviously here in, in our congregation are well-versed at the increasing role that Islam is playing in world events. It's, it's, it's painfully obvious the increasing role that Islam is playing in world events. We see Western nations that now protect other religions and specifically Islam while not protecting Christianity. The religion upon, upon which these nations were founded that are not being protected. When we, you watch the news this week and you see the reaction from the, from, the, from the various news networks as to what's going on, you see the political agendas from both sides. You see Fox and everybody from the right absolutely castigating Islam and making sure everyone understood that behind this terrorism is Islam. You see the political left never breathing the word Islam at all, never mentioning the word they call it terrorism. And... You, and we see our prime minister, you see the, the uh, leaders of, of other Western nations absolutely not breathing those words. So we've got two big sides here with one obvious problem, that something's happening. And Islam is playing a part. We see a pope now who's changing the entire belief system of his church, that the gods of all religions are the same gods, is the same God of the Bible. All religions, their God is the God of the Bible. And that you just need to worship whatever God your religion is, and it's the same God. Just this week, you may have seen, you may have seen it be reported, that he washed and kissed the feet of Muslim immigrants as he washed their feet 
pre-Easter. North American leaders, again, as I mentioned, refused this week to label anything here with the Islamic threat. Chrislam, as we learned about not that long ago, is gaining a foothold as Christians compromise their beliefs in order to unify with other belief systems. That should be a warning sign when religions try to unify with other, other religious systems. Because isn't that what we read about that is, going, that is going to happen? That all religions will come together as one? Will Islam become part of the Roman Catholic Church? Will the Roman Catholic Church become part of Islam? We don't know how it's going to unfold. It's obvious, in its obvious effort to accommodate Islam, will the Roman Catholic Church allow itself to be incorporated into Islam, which will lead the efforts of the Seventh Kingdom? Or will Islam allow itself to become incorporated into the Roman Catholic Church? Or is there some other faction that we're completely unaware of that will lead the Seventh Kingdom? Speculation is good as long as we use it for good. Speculation is good. We can't hang our hats on it, but speculation is good. It helps us keep an eye on world events. If we are speculating about world events, it means we're watching world events and we're keeping our eyes on it. It helps us keep each other informed and attuned to change. We all don't have access to the same news information, but when we talk together and speculate together, it allows us to keep each other informed, keep each other attuned to changes that are going on. And specifically, it allows us together to keep a close discerning eye on ourselves, on ourselves. It is good to speculate as long as it doesn't divide us. That's what, that's what Satan wants. He wants to divide us. It is good to speculate. It is good to watch world events. It is good to speculate as long as speculation doesn't divide us. And it is good to speculate because it means we are keeping our eyes on world events, which is important, which is one of the things that Christ told us to do so that we will not be overtaken by surprise. Let's go to Matthew 26. I want to show you a, a small example of where to show that speculation can be a good thing when it is used for the right purpose. When we use speculation to divide, when we use speculation to to wrongly divide the church, to cause schisms in the church, it is not good. But speculation can be a good thing. Let's look at an interesting story here, relevant to this time of year, and see that a prophecy that Christ gave that caused his people to speculate. Verse 20, Matthew 26. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He was prophesying. He was saying, one of you is going to betray me. So what did they do as a group? They turned to each other and said, is it me? Is it me? Could it be me? They were speculating. Who is going to betray Christ? Could it be me? That speculation was a good thing because they turned the focus on themselves. And they said, is it me? Could it be one of us? Could we, in our efforts here now be one who could betray Christ. Speculation can be a good thing when it unifies the body, 
when it brings people together, when it causes people to discern what is going on out there and causes us to discern our own actions. An interesting little take on that small little conversation, but it was speculation against a prophecy that Christ had given. Is it I? Is it I? All religions, what we must remember, is that all religions will come together and rise against Christ in this final epic battle. It could be under the banner of the Roman Catholic Church. It could be under the banner of Islam. At this point, it certainly seems like it's going to be one of the two. Or who knows where this Chrislam will take us. Maybe Chrislam is the beginning of the unifying of the religions. And in that, in that vein, we've got parts of both religions, Christ, Christianity and Islam, as part of one unified effort. We have no idea. We have no idea. But it's important not, be, not to be too pressed into one thought so that we are caught unaware. So that we are looking in one direction and missing what's going on around us. And as we gather together as a congregation and, and sharpen each other's iron and speculate together, we do so almost in roundtable fashion so that we are protecting each other's backs so that, you know what, I can't look everywhere. But I have trust in the family that together in a circle, we are protecting each other by keeping our eyes on all directions. Because it is going to come. There will be a unifying of religions that will come together and will be against God's people. So what does Christ expect of us amidst all the speculation as to who it could be, when it's going to happen? Revelation 17. Revelation 17. What does God expect from us, his people? Verse 7. But the angel said to me, again, one of John's asides as he's writing his vision. The angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who, will do, who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. So those who are not part of the faith, those whose names are not written in the book of life, will be amazed at the power of the beast and, and the beast and the false prophet and the antichrist. The angel says to John, why are you marveling? You don't need to be surprised. Why? Because we have our Bibles to play that part for us. Why do you marvel? We shouldn't marvel. We should be studying our Bibles because God prepares us for this through the pages of his Bible, as we have come to understand through our study of the book of Revelation. God doesn't expect us to come unglued at changing events. So when we wake up on Tuesday morning or Monday morning and we see that the airport in Brussels is, is a war zone, just another time marker on God's plan. It happened to be this time in Brussels. Who knows next week? It could be Paris, it could be London, 
Could be Washington, could be Toronto, could be Burlington. We see, as God provides us with his word, that it's so that we will not marvel. We will not become like those who are not part of the book of life and be totally aghast and come unglued at world events. We don't need to come unglued. We don't need to marvel. We have God's word here if we study it. Verse 9. Here is the mind, chapter 17, verse 9. Here's the mind which has wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. We've read this. Five have fallen. One is and one and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So we see this culmination of events that are being described for us here as the work of the devil. And we can't forget that it is a culmination of events of the work of Satan that began back in the Garden of Eden. It began back in the Garden of Eden. It's just part of his plan to destroy man to, in his attempt to destroy mankind. Here we note the historical aspects of the seven kingdoms. We talked about that. All extensions of the false religion of Satan, the devil, that began with Nimrod, but began way back in the Garden of Eden when he wanted to destroy mankind and have mankind not participate and be given the glory that he had with God. He was, he was a perfect creation. He was the son of the morning star. He was perfect in all that he did. And he gave that up because he was not satisfied with God's plan. Let's go back to Genesis 3. As we consider these events that we read in Revelation that are simply there so that we don't marvel, so that we're not surprised, it is an extension and a climax to the story that began that we read about back in Genesis 3. We'll pick it up in verse 6. We read the first five verses. So then when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Satan's way causes confusion. We see that around us. We see people confused as to what's going on, marveling at what's going on, just like it caused confusion back here for Adam and Eve. It causes shame. It causes self-reliance. It causes doubt in God. That's what Satan, that is how Satan is attacking man, through confusion, through shame, through doubt, through self-reliance, because all of those factors work against having a close and committed relationship with God. Let's go back to Revelation 17. As we consider what Christ expects of us, what we can do, what role do we play as these events unfold to the culmination of this one world religion where all religions will come together 
against God's people. Back to verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Let's get forward from there to verse 13. Verse 12, for context. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as, as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to, to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The climax of this story involves two sides, Babylon and Christ. This one world religion is simply a collusion of all that Satan has created since Genesis 3 when he started this process. He did it through Assyria. He did it through Egypt, all of these empires. It is now a collusion of all of these religions that have got man confused, that have got him relying on himself for guidance, that have caused doubt, that have caused him to not believe God. Exclusion of all of these, these factions, these religions. It is that side, or it is Christ's side. And there will be no other sides. It is those who are written in the book of life, those who are not written in the book of life, those who want to be part of the kingdom, those who at that point do not want to be part of God's kingdom. Verse 6, unfortunately, tells us, that there will be potential loss of life for those who choose Christ's side in this life. Potential loss of life. But recall that we previously read, it is but for a short time. There will be short-term pain, as we know. Verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Again, this marveling of people who are enraptured by this collusion, this one, one religion that will come together and collude against God's people. So what does Christ expect of us? He expects us to study our Bibles and to follow the commandments of God and to stay true to God. He also expects us to pay attention to this same God argument. This will be critical in the amalgamation of religions into a united force to take on Christ. Religions follow a God. That's who you... When you, when you follow a religion, you are following its leader. If we come to the point, as is being conveyed by the Pope now, that it doesn't matter what religion you are, it's all the same God, that breeds unity amongst all the religions. You know what? I, I, can, I, can become, I can accept Islam into the Christian faith because we follow Allah. Allah is God. We, of course, don't believe that. But if that's, if that's the belief system and we see this, all gods are the same God. That leads to this unity that is required when all these religions come together to battle against Christ. We can't forget that all gods are not the same, that we worship the Lord God of Israel. We worship Yahweh. Acts chapter 4. And again, stuff you know, 
But God demands that we don't forget this. We cannot forget this. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Again, cutting into the context for purposes of time here, but we know this verse. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, back to verse 10, tells us what that is. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is no, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are saved by Jesus Christ. And that's it. So as all the religions of this world unify to battle against Jesus Christ, we come under his reign and we support and are faithful to Jesus Christ. Don't forget Philippians 2. You can make note of that. Philippians 2 provides similar references and reminds us that ultimately, at the name of Jesus Christ, verse 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we, you follow through after Revelation 17, Revelation 18, 19, 20, you see that that becomes a fulfilled prophecy, that those who remain alive will be the ones, those who receive eternal life will be the ones that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we study our Bibles. We remember that we worship Jesus Christ, and there is a difference. Jesus Christ and Yahweh are different from Allah. They are different from Buddha. They are different from Muhammad. They are different from any other religion that is out there. There's no alternative. There's no alternate salvation that Satan can offer us. He offers us death. That's what he wants to offer us. He couches it in niceties. He couches it in stuff that pleases our, our physical bodies, that pleases our, our, our desires, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He couches these things so that it is appealing to the flesh, appealing to our human, our human desires. But he is offering us death, and he is offering us elimination from the kingdom of God. The only thing he can offer us is a temporary reprieve from death in this life at the hands of those who worship this beast. And again, we refer back to, go back to the Genesis 3 account and see that that was his modus operandi all along. What else can we do? What else are we to do? We need to pay attention to the supernatural events that will come as part of this beast power. We see that, we've read that. Let's go back to Revelation 13. As part of this unifying force, And we see, we read previously that Satan gave power. Satan will give power to these folks. He will also give power to supernatural events, to miracles that will be done so that they can, that the beast can gain credibility. We see Revelation 13. Verse 13, we read this. He performs great signs 
said, even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And then fast forwarding over to chapter 16, verse 13, same context. These miraculous supernatural events that will happen. Verse 13, chapter 16, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kingdoms of the earth and of the world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So as we see events unfold, there will be miracles that are performed. There are miracles of Satan, and that has happened. You refer back to Exodus 7. We don't have time to, to go back there. But we, we note the Egyptian magicians that were able to mirror the miracles of God. Here we see fire called down from heaven. We all know Satan is the great duplicator. Nothing is new. Fire was called down from heaven back in the days of Elijah. That is not some new miracle that Satan has come up with. He is the great duplicator. He's not an, origi- he's not an original being. He copies God. He copies the plan of God. He's the master counterfeiter. He'll be able to perform illusionary miracles so that this one world religion will gain credibility and people will marvel. We see all the talk about marveling. Part of the marveling is because they will perform great wonders. But God's people cannot be sidetracked. We don't need to marvel. We can't. Part of the marveling is that we are not caught unaware by these, these, these supernatural miracles by Satan, the master counterfeiter. They will be illusions. They will not be miracles. They will be illusions. Calling fire down from heaven isn't a new miracle. He did it with Elijah. Let's go to Revelation 22. Because any miracle not from God is sorcery. Again, part of this culmination of events that, that started back in the Garden of Eden and will finalize at this final great battle is the fact that ultimately there are only two sides. Again, we see so many factions of various religions today. Really, there are only two sides. There's God's side and there's Satan's side. So when there are miracles, they are either of God or they are of Satan. When they are of Satan, it's sorcery, pure and simple. There, There is no other definition. It is simple sorcery. And those who practice that, chapter 22 and verse 15 will be outside the kingdom of God and will be in the same category as dogs, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters and liars. So we can't marvel when we see these events take place. So we study our Bibles. We pay attention to this same God theory that will, so we are not confused by it. We are Pay attention to supernatural events that we are not marveled by it. We also watch together world events. Let's go to Luke 21. We must watch. We must be watching what is going on around us. Let's get our news again from reputable sources. Political correctness, competition from news sources, right versus left, rather than a simple telling of the correct news. Remember, 
In the Garden of Eden, Satan caused confusion. That is, that is how he operates. We see today people confused. People confused, and by our leadership, by the ones who control the information that we get, people are confused. We cannot be confused. Luke 21, verse 36. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And then quickly, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, I want to look at both. Again, in context of James, Peter, and John falling asleep on Christ as he was praying in the garden, Christ said to them, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As we watch world events, as we speculate on who the beast could be, as we watch things unfold before our eyes, and we come together and speculate, we are watching world events. We are watching world events that we're not caught unaware, but notice in both places, we watch, most importantly, so that we know where we stand. We must know where we stand. It doesn't matter, ultimately, whether it is Islam, whether it is the Roman Catholic Church, whether it is Chrislam, maybe the Buddhists come in and take over everything, as peaceful and as, 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 uh, as pious as they are. We have no idea. It certainly looks like it's some combination of, of the Roman Catholic Church with Islam, and Islam is certainly rearing its head. That's, it, seems plain, it seems obvious that Islam plays a part and may, in fact, be a, a leading force. But it doesn't matter who it is. We need to stay right with God. Because when we watch world events, we watch them so we discern our own actions. And that's the message that we're getting from the book of Revelation. Before John gets, Christ even gets into any of the events that he foretells for us so that we don't marvel, we know that the purpose of all that is that we are right with God. Because it won't matter who's in charge of that one world religion. We can't be part of it. We can't be part of it. So we watch our own actions that we may be counted worthy. Christ warns us to watch. It is always in the context of our own actions. How do our own actions play against what we see happening in the world versus what we see expected of us in the Bible? Is what we see happening in the world congruent with the Bible, or does it go against the Bible? Therefore, we know that's wrong, and we don't follow it. It's all about our own actions. That's, the, whole, that's the, the meaning behind the book of Revelation. We know we are grateful to God that he gives us all these signs so that we are not surprised as these things happen. But we can't forget is about how we are acting as individuals and as, a, as a, a, a family before God. That we as a family are right and ready to take on this mantle of battling Satan with Christ. In what condition is the church as these events are about to take place? That is what is behind the book of Revelation. Revelation is really about the message to the churches, where we stand with God. It's true of the Olivet Prophecies. It's true about Daniel. It's true about all, this, all prophecies. All prophecies point people back to where do you stand with God? Where, are your actions congruent with what God expects of his people? Or are your actions congruent with what Satan is trying to do and eliminate you from the kingdom of God? We should be reading these prophets with an eye toward their true message. In light of these events that are taking place, 
where do we stand? So as each, as Brussels unfolds, and as the next one will surely unfold somewhere in the, in the not-too-distant future, is a call to action on our own part to consider where do I stand with God? As these things happen, as these things start to happen, the end is coming closer. And we need to be ever more conscious and ever more discerning where we stand. The events are not the end message, but the vehicle by which Christ is trying to drive home a message. Time is short. How serious are you about your calling? Are you serious about your calling? Or is protecting this life, is being having an easy life, important? Let's look at the end of these prophecies. As we consider this one world religion and this epic battle that is going to take place, that is simply a culmination of a plan that began back in the garden, before the Garden of Eden, when Satan was cast down to earth. We see that that's not the end of the story. The end of the story, and you can find it in Revelation 18, 19, 20, on into 21, Christ crushes his enemies. Christ wins. Plain and simple. Christ wins. Christ crushes the enemy. Verse 21 of chapter 18. Picking one verse out of several chapters that that we could just for the sake of time. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. It started back when Satan convinced Adam and Eve to, to separate themselves from God. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Satan then raised up Nimrod in Babel, in Babylon. Babylon will not be around anymore. Christ will crush Babylon. We are confident of that. We see that back in Daniel 2. Daniel 2, quickly. So as we consider these events that take place, as we watch things unfold and remind ourselves not to be marveled, remind ourselves to watch events unfold, to come together, speculate together, talk together about what this could be so that we can keep each other on the straight and narrow. We're reminded that Christ wins. We read verses 37 to 40 about these four of the, four of the kingdoms in history. Verse 44, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. We are not sure who the beast is. We know it exists. We know that all religions will come together. We're starting to have an idea of who it probably is and could be. What we are sure of is that Christ crushes it in no uncertain terms. He wins. You know when we learned that? We learned that back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. 
This is not new. This is not new. When God takes the serpent and Adam and Eve to task, he tells the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Again, there will be two factions. God, uh, God's seed and Satan's seed. You shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Referring to Christ. Christ will take a bruise in the heel. Small pain, short-term pain, short-term damage. But ultimately, he will step on the head of the serpent and will crush it. That's not news to Dan- that, that's not new in Daniel. That's not new in John. It is right here, the start of the story in the book of Genesis. He shall bruise your head. Ultimately, Satan or Christ always wins. Christ will win. He will crush whatever that one world religion will look like. Let's go to Second Peter. We just got a couple more verses before we finish off here. Second Peter chapter three. As we ponder these events that come, as we look at world events and see how they're unfolding, and try to line up where they could be in the pages of prophecy, we cannot forget the main lesson, and that is how God's people are in line with God. Chapter 3 of Second Peter, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So we see supernatural events, we see surprise, we see marveling here, that will become as a thief in the night. Most people will not even be aware it's happening. But God's people know, because Peter said here, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since you know all about this, it won't be a surprise to you, It won't cause you undue angst. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. As as the family of God, we should welcome these events. We should welcome, unfortunately, that we see pain being inflicted. Pain should hurt us. But what it tells us is the plan of God is proceeding just as planned. And that around the corner, Jesus Christ wins. So while we see temporary pain, we see temporary bloodshed, we, we, maybe, we, maybe you knew someone that was involved in, in Brussels, maybe you knew someone that was involved in San Bernardino, maybe you knew someone that was involved in New York City 15 years ago. It is temporary pain because Satan caused this. We cannot blame God for this. Satan has caused this. And it's temporary pain, and we know that around the corner, Jesus Christ wins. Again, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, our perspective should be where are we in line with God? Are we in line with God and what he expects? Finally, Revelation 14. Let's finish off in Revelation. An appropriate place to end this study. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, 
having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. When we consider, when we see Christ, before that, we may be part of the martyrdom, our, our, maybe our, in the next generation, maybe our grandchildren would be part of that martyrdom. We don't know, but the blood of, the blood of saints will flow. That's the temporary painful part. But when Christ comes back, if we are part of that martyrdom, remember that we are resurrected to meet him in the air. We to come down on the Mount of Olives, and then we are with him to bring an end to this chaos. Why? Because we do not defile ourselves. We are faithful to God and do not defile ourselves with other faiths, remaining virgin-like and chaste in the eyes of God. And we follow Christ wherever he leads us. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That is our mission, to stay true to God, to follow Christ, to stay chaste, to stay true to God's ways, so that we can be part of that group that comes back, descends back down, rises out of our graves if we we happen to be part of those martyrs that die, rise out of our graves and settle back down on the Mount of Olives with Christ. Martyrdom will be asked of God's people. It may or may not be us, but there will be blood of saints running in the streets for a short time. Regardless of who the beast ends up being, they will all come together against the people of God. We cannot forget that. Why? Because this has been Satan's plan from the very beginning of our time on this planet. When we were created, and, we, and this plan for God to create this, this family of his, to share in his glory, and to give eternity with, eternity that Satan lost because of his dissatisfaction with God's plan, that has been part of his modus operandi from our very first breath. Every kingdom before and coming is simply a part of his plan to bring us down. Here, verse 12, is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith and testimonies of Jesus Christ. The first fruits will return with Christ and take up the cause for those who still inhabit the earth. Some will be martyred. They will be resurrected. If, if they're part of the first fruits, settle back with Christ. There will be others that still inhabit the earth. Now, for those who are still here going through this, here is the way to be on the winning side of Christ. Here is the way to be assured of eternal life and be assured of victory. Keep the commandments and keep the faith and testimonies of Jesus Christ. It remains that simple. It was that simple at the start. It remains that simple now. The confusion is caused by Satan who has come to destroy us, and he's using whatever means he can create or counterfeit, more accurately, to bring us down. That must be our message, for it is the path to victory. 
following, keeping the commandments of God and following the testimonies of Jesus Christ is the path to victory. And it will matter not who that one world religion is. If we are on the Lord's side, we will win and we will have eternal life. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.